Thank you, Kyle and church. Beautiful words. Uh, I, before the first service, or I should say at, at the, during the first service, I wasn't certain I'd uh, heard that song or sung it before. Maybe I did, but I wasn't familiar with it. But just rich, awesome uh, lyrics that flow so perfectly well with our passage this morning. And it certainly would preach, even ties in with this. Uh, we stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we will stand in the glory then on the other side of eternity in the glory of Christ. We stand in the gospel of Christ. We will stand in the glory of Christ. And in the context of the songs, I would commend to you to uh, take advantage of the weekly devotional that is published earlier in the week to have our hearts prepared for worship. One of the songs that was listed uh, was for the Wednesday devotion this week is The Everlasting Love of God. Uh, the third stanza reads as such, or sings as such. I'm not going to sing it. You'll be pleased to hear. This is how it goes. It says, How great and precious my Redeemer's blood. How pure the passion of the Savior. My sins are drowned beneath this mighty flood. My soul is swept away with wonder. Uh, beloved, there is a river of blood flowing through the pages of Scripture, and it finds its vortex in Hebrews chapter 9. Please open your Bibles there. In the book of Hebrews, this magnificent sermonic epistle, is really about two things. It's about revelation and redemption, what God has said to us and what Jesus has done for us. Or even using biblically accurate language, speaking in the present tense, as the author does, revelation, what God is saying to us in the pages of Scripture, and redemption, what Jesus is doing for us even right now. And, beloved, the riches and the depth of the Word of God in a doctrinally deep and rich book like Hebrews. The riches of the wisdom of the Word of God is like water. It finds its own level. It finds its own level in the hearing and understanding of those who receive it, of the believers who receive it, the mature believers and the new believers. Beloved, hear the Word of God. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. This is the Word of God, Hebrews 9 and verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. 
Now, beloved, in this passage, we have almost a built-in outline. We see three appearances of your mediator. You see three appearances of your mediator in the present, past, and future. He is, and this is in verses 24, 26, and 28. In verse 24, he is appearing as your mediator now in heaven. In verse 26, he has appeared as your mediator on earth and in heaven. And then finally, he will appear as your mediator back here on earth. And the intent here is for us on this first Lord's Day of the month, even as we would continue to prepare our hearts for communion. This is a perfect passage to do just that. Perfect passage with the truths here for any day of the week, especially a Lord's Day when we will be observing communion. So, let's look at the first appearance of your mediator, namely that he is appearing in heaven. Now, in verses 23 through 26, what the author is doing is he is again reinforcing the sufficiency, the singularity, and the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. He's covering material that he's covered before. And look at how he begins it. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. It was necessary. This is divine necessity. Uh, the same kind of divine necessity that we saw back in chapter 7, verse 12, where the author wrote there, when the priesthood is changed, talking about going from the old to the new, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Or even earlier here in chapter 9, in verse 16, where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Again, beloved, this is divine necessity in the economy of God. According to the eternal plan of redemption, these things are necessary. And what he says is it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens. So the furniture, the artifacts that we saw referenced earlier in chapter 9 of the objects that were in the holy place and the objects, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies. These were copies, seeds or sketches. In chapter 8, verse 5, the author referred to copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The point here is, while those objects were mandated and ordained by God, and they were to be consecrated, there was a sacred, God-given sacred nature for them, they were merely earthly pattern of heavenly realities. That was what the author was communicating back in chapter 8, verse 5, and certainly what he's communicating here. But as we continue on here in verse 23 and 24, the main point here is that what is true for the copies, or what was true for the copies, is required for the realities. Now, we know from Hebrews, and we know from other books of the Bible, that there is worship in heaven. Uh, consider, for example, John in Revelation 15. You can turn there if you wish, or you can listen as I read, but in John 15, verses 5 through 8, as the Apostle John has this heavenly vision of heaven, this is what he writes. Revelation 15, verse 5, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven <clears throat> was opened. 
And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And, verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So, there is worship in heaven. We've seen that in Hebrews. We read of that just now in Revelation. There's a sacrifice in heaven. Uh, the preceding verses here in Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ brought his once-for-all perfect sacrifice, his imperishable blood into the presence of heaven. But now in our verse, we see that there's cleansing in heaven. He says, it was necessary for the copy of these things in heaven to be cleansed with these, to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, we can ask the question, this is cleansing in heaven. Why is there cleansing in heaven? Is there sin in heaven? Of course not. May Genotai, that can't be the case at all, but a good place to help us understand this incredible dynamic of cleansing in heaven might be the words of God through the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 1 verse 20, you'll read there that through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, beloved, to reconcile all things to himself, the blood is applied on earth and in heaven. You see, heaven is where you and I, if you are in Christ, that is our eternal permanent abode. That is where we are going. It is where sinners, sinners, even ones who are now positionally saints, are restored to God's presence. So this cleansing in heaven, again, is not, of course, because of sin in heaven, but because sinful men and women need to be reconciled to God's offended righteousness. This was accomplished in totality at the cross, and it is also accomplished by the cleansing of the heavenly things themselves on your behalf. And look at what he says also here in verse 23, better sacrifices than these. You see, what animal sacrifices accomplish ceremonially and typically, Christ's sacrifice accomplished actually and eternally. And the author uses this heavenly language in line with the superlative language he used through the whole letter. That Christ is better. He is infinitely better. The better blood, the better covenant, uh, the better mediator. All things, the heavenly things themselves, are consecrated by the blood of Christ. And the stamp of the cross is on all of them, even in heaven. And Jesus' sacrifice is better here because it's associated with heaven itself, the very place of God's very presence. Now look at verse 24. For, the reason why, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. 
And the author answers again what he's answered before, the where and the why. The where into heaven itself. Uh, The same thing that he described for us back in verse 11, same chapter, you read there. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, into heaven itself. That's the where. The author answers the why at the end of verse 24. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is appearing now in the presence, literally toward the face of God, prosopon. It's a more personal, more intimate than in the presence of God, enopion. This is Christ's mediatory intercessory work on your behalf toward the very face of God on your behalf. Beloved, the incarnate Son, the book of Hebrews opened with the incomparable incarnate Son of God in His glory, in His majesty. The Son, your great high priest, is not now in a smoke-clouded chamber where, like in the Old Covenant, tabernacle where God's glory needed to be veiled lest the high priest die. Christ appears in the very presence of God again toward the face of God for you and for me. He sanctifies, beloved, he sanctifies your presence in heaven before the Holy Father. That's why you and I, we are adopted daughters and sons of God most high. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 8, 17. And it's the same doctrines, the same truths in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, under the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 15, says this, writes this, thus, and, and look at the exalted language about God, and then how at the end of the verse, what he says about you and about me. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of spirit. That is the grace and the mercy of the Old Testament God, which is the same as the grace and mercy of the New Testament God. John, the Apostle John, writes, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. We have a helper. We have a parakletos. And some of you, some erudite student of Scripture might say, now, well, okay, I read what John just wrote there, but I, I thought the Holy Spirit was our advocate. I thought the Holy Spirit was our helper. Understand this, mark this, the Holy Spirit is your advocate right now on earth. Jesus Christ is your advocate, your helper, right now in heaven. That is part of the dynamic of the triune Godhead ministry to you and to me. The 20th century English theologian Alan Stibbs, in his lecture, The Finished Work of Christ, had a great illustration to bring out the dynamic of the once-for-all aspect of the atoning work of Christ and the continual intercessory work of Christ, where he makes a comparison at the earthly level with the greatest, most honorable occupation or 
office or calling of a human being, namely motherhood. This is what he wrote. The act of offering was necessary to constitute Christ a priest in fact and not only in name. Just as the act of childbearing is necessary to constitute a woman a mother. Um, Pause there for a second. My beloved Margie, she became a mother not through childbearing but through adoption. And then she continued to become a mother through continued childbearing two more times. I just throw that out there to say, uh, dear Ladies, if you are a mother by virtue of adoption, you fall under this as well. But I continue. That truth, but that truth, does not mean in the case of motherhood that henceforth to those who call her mother, such a woman is always giving them birth. Watch this. Her act of childbearing is not only an indispensable act, but also a finished work. What they now enjoy are other complementary ministries of motherhood which lie beyond the childbearing, end quote. Beloved, in the same way, Christ's mediatory priesthood on your behalf, his sacrifice is a finished work and a continuing necessary work. And Jesus, your mediator, is mediating for you right now. He appears right now before the Father to speak on your behalf. He is appearing right now in front of the Father toward the face of God for Tom and Gail, for David and Amanda, for Jim and Donna, for you personally. That is what God says to you as you read Hebrews chapter 9. So he is appearing now in heaven. The second appearance of your mediator that we see in verses 25 and 26 is he has appeared both on earth and in heaven. Now, these again have been stated and hinted at already by the author, but he just can't say them enough that he has appeared on earth and in heaven, that his blood was poured out in the courtyard of earth and carried into and applied in heaven. That's the incarnation and specifically the crucifixion and the ascension when they were carried into and applied in heaven. Look at verse 25. The author says, Nor was it that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year. This is more imagery from the day of atonement under the old covenant. But unlike the old covenant high priest's offering, beloved, Christ's offering is perpetually effective because it's with blood, well, because in the old covenant priesthood, it was with blood, not his own. Christ's offering is perpetually effective because it's, if you'll excuse a double negative, not a blood that is not his own. He brought in his own blood. He brought in human blood. Again, there's a river of blood flowing through the pages of Scripture with its vortex here in chapter 9. Back in verse 22, remember, without outpouring of blood, without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Beloved, there is power in the blood. And this is power, there's power in the blood part 2. That is the sermon title. That is what God has for us here. Now look at verse 26. Otherwise... He would have needed to suffer often, second time we see that word often, since the foundation of the world. 
What the author is doing here is he's using a reduction to an absurdity, saying, look, if, if Jesus had to go back and do that again, he would have to suffer again and again and again since the very foundation of the world, the phrase that we saw in the previous verse. What the author is saying here is, by way of contrast with this absurdity that he brought out, that he died once for all. So he uses this reduction to an absurdity, this impossible, ridiculous hypothetical scenario, the same type of use that he did back in, you may remember, in chapter 6, where he used the reduction to an absurd, impossible illustration to drive home the absolute certainty of the security of our salvation. That's what he does here. You see, if Christ's offering didn't fully pay the price once for all, he'd have to offer a sacrifice again and again. He'd have to suffer again and again. Literally, he'd have to die again and again. Now, right in the middle of verse 26, the author says, but now, but now, huge contrast. The English Standard Version translates this as, but as it is. And what is taking place here, the author pastor preacher of the book of Hebrews calls us away from the speculative fancy of the ridiculous impossibility that he just talked about. He calls us away from the speculative fancy to the historical reality because he says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested. He has appeared. That's the second appearance. Once Hopox, this word once, the Greek word, 14 times in the New Testament, eight times in Hebrews, three times here in our passage in verse 26, 27, 28. The author uses this crescendo of this once to drive home the all-sufficiency, once-for-all aspect of the sacrifice and ministry of Christ at the cross. One died for all, once for all. At the consummation of the ages. Uh, this consummation of the ages, this is a common motif. Uh, we saw this, in fact, the author even opened up this letter back in chapter 1, verse 2, when he talked about in these last days. Or you can think of Christ's final charge on earth to his disciples in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 20, where Christ gave the apostles, gave the disciples, and gave you and I the promise that I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So the consummation of the ages, the end of the age, these last days. Beloved, dear friend, this is the focus of redemptive history. The commentator Newell had a great statement on this. He said, quote, all previous ages lead up to this, all succeeding ages are governed by this. And, you know, you and I, we recognize the momentous significance and impact of this event. When you take out your checkbook, I take out my checkbook less, I pay most things online, but I do take it out occasionally, and this is not an appeal to giving, this is just a simple illustration. I take out my checkbook, and you take out your checkbook, and the little line up in the upper right, you write November 6, 2022. And you may ask yourself, friend, why is it dated this way? And the simple answer is because he appeared and cut all time in half. Uh, pagans may try to strip away the impact of this reality by talking about before common era and common era. 
instead of before Christ and Anno Domini, but they can't escape the reality that it is the event, it is this appearance which cut time in half. That is the impact, that is the significance. Continuing on here, look at what it says. And this is the why. It says he has been manifested, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin. In chapter 7, verse 18, the author talked about a setting aside, same word, a setting aside of a former commandment. This is the complete removal, as if it never existed. What God is telling you here is that Christ has dispensed your sin as if it never existed. He exiles it, places it under judgment, and ultimately, finally, and eternally defeats it. Beloved, the abiding efficacy of Christ's sacrifice is presented and accepted once for all by God in heaven. That's why the apostle, well, that's why the apostle John records the words of the baptizer forerunner John in John 1.29, where the forerunner baptizer John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or the apostle John himself wrote in 1 John 3.5, You know he appeared in order to take away sins. And then he gives an application, and in him there is no sin. And what the author, what John there is reminding us is that in Christ, our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and even future. But as believers, as followers of Christ, by God's grace and mercy and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. We can mortify our sin. And a sinning Christian, Alistair Begg says in his charming Scottish accent, I won't try to imitate it here, a sinning Christian is a miserable creature because he knows, he or she knows what it's like to enjoy a right relationship with the Father. Beloved, dear friend, are you part of this family of God? Are you numbered among those who know what it's like to have your sins cleansed in this way? Or do you have religion without reality? Do you have religion without a right relationship with Jesus? Are you chasing the shadow without possessing the substance? Maybe even you're here this morning and you don't realize or you don't admit to yourself that you're a sinner. If that's the case, you're in deeper trouble than you realize. But on this side of eternity, there is always hope. There is a way of escape. Today, Isaiah says, and we can apply now, today is the day of salvation. If you're here not trusting Christ alone by faith alone, may today be the day of your salvation. So he is appearing in heaven right now. He has appeared both on earth and in heaven. Finally, the third appearance is he will appear again here on earth in verses 27 and 28. He is appearing now in heaven to save us from sin's power. He has appeared on earth and even in heaven to save us from sin's penalty. And he will appear to save us from sin's very presence. As I 
mentioned before, verses 23 through 26 were, for the most part, topics the author had already addressed, part of his purposeful repetition. But now, in these last two verses, he introduces new material. At the beginning of verse 27, look at what he says. He says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once. Appointed. This is the language of appointment. It is stored up. It is laid up. And Death is the subject here. We've seen death, and this is what the authors covered. We've seen death already in Hebrews, the death of animals as part of the Old Covenant sacrifice and the death of Jesus. What's new here, this is your death. This is my death. Beloved, you have a divine appointment. Dear friend, you have a divine appointment. Your days were written in a book before the foundation of the world. Death, you see, is unavoidable. We know this from human experience, and we know this from Scripture, but at the same time, or I should say and, the same time, death is not merely some natural evolutionary process. It's certainly not any kind of evolutionary process. That's nonsense and illogical, irrational, different topic. It's not some cosmic accident. Also understand this, death is not the mark of humanity. Death is the mark of fallen humanity. It is uh, knowing that the world we know is not, dear friend, the world that you know is not the world God made. The world you know and the world I know is the world man has ruined by sin. Death is divine judgment. Death, if you want one simple encapsulated statement, death is a verdict. And we can ask the question, where was it appointed for men to die once. And we go back to the book of beginnings. In Genesis 2 verse 17. After God had told Adam and Eve. The generous provision that they can eat from any. From the fruit of any tree in the garden of Eden. And they can eat freely. Except for one tree. Genesis 2:17, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it. You shall surly most certainly die. And beloved, the moment Adam sinned, we all stepped on the road of death. That's why in chapter 3, verse 19 of Genesis, when God was dispensing his just judgment, he said, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall remain. We stepped on the road of dust and the road of Death. It is appointed for men to die once. Now, there are exceptions we see in Scripture. Enoch and Elijah, as a special unique circumstance, didn't die. They escaped death. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the widow Nain's son died twice because Jesus raised them from their first death. Uh, the believers who will be alive at Christ's return those taken up in the rapture won't die, but death is the norm. And the world tries to have all kinds of different solutions to death. We can think of one, the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism with reincarnation, where each lifetime is just a preparation for the next. Now, if we need a singular verse to refute reincarnation, this is it. You see, 
the biblical view of life. The right view of life is not a circle. This is not the Lion King circle of life. It is a line. It is linear. There's a beginning and an end and a middle. And the eternal question is, what are you doing? What am I doing with the middle? And what the author says here, what God says to you and to me, as surely as death is a reality, judgment is also a reality. That's why at the end of verse 27, and after this, judgment. A word of absolute finality. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 14, 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Or when he is writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So, Here in Hebrews 9, this is actually the first time we see that word judgment. The author introduces us to the topic of God's righteous judgment here. And then in verse, excuse me, chapter 10, he applies it. Uh, Look at verses 26 and 27 of the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. The author, by way of a passionate exhortation and appeal and urge, says, For if we go on sinning willfully, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Uh, The author has a great heart and concern that those who are not in Christ escape the fierce judgment and wrath that is coming. Just a few verses later, Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're not in Christ, if the imperishable blood of Christ hasn't cleansed you from your sin by virtue of faith and trust in Christ. So, back here in verse 27, death is not an appointment that comes merely by natural processes. No, our appointment with death is a divinely appointed moment. Beloved, Dear friend, God planned your birthday. God planned or plans your death day. That's why the psalmist wrote, Psalm 139, verse 16, speaking to God, the psalmist says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book, they were all written. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Beloved, again, Dear friend, God planned your birthday. God planned your death day. God sets this appointment. Not Satan, not not even cancer, not me. The Lord makes the appointment and the Lord sees to it that you, that I, keep that appointment. And there's no meaningless fatalism here. There's is all governed by the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, no matter what it looks like to us. These deep truths are not presented in just some kind of generic fashion. They're communicated in a personal and saving way because for a believer, we read in Scripture, when death beckons you, beloved, the Lord calls it falling asleep or departing to be with Christ. So, beloved, as you approach the river of death, take comfort in this all-wise, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God, no matter what 
it might look like at the time. Because back here in the text, you see, life comes after death for those who trust Jesus to the end. In verse 27 at the beginning, he said, inasmuch as, here's a comparison, an illustration, inasmuch as it's appointed for men to die once, beginning of verse 28, see what it says, so Christ also. This is a comparison between every man and Christ. This is telling us that the true humanity of the incarnate Son is seen not only in his living, but also in his dying. So Christ also, the verse continues, having been offered once, that word again, to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. We've seen his first coming in Hebrews. We've seen this before, but what is this salvation without reference to sin? That's the author telling us and reminding us again that sin has been dealt with decisively at his first appearance. And he uses the language in Isaiah 53. You can turn there if you wish, or you can listen as I read. But in Isaiah 53, in the great suffering servant chapter of Isaiah, God says through the prophet Isaiah, verses 10 through 12, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, watch this, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Transgressors like me, transgressors like you. The old covenant high priest emerged from the Holy of Holies. When the Old Covenant high priest came out of the Holy of Holies on that great day of atonement, that was an indication that that offering was accepted, was satisfactory to God. If the Old Covenant high priest blew it, he would die. Some histories tell us that they would tie a rope around his foot so they could pull him out if he blew it and died in there. But when he came out, that appearance out, again, was an indication the offering was accepted. Beloved, so Christ's second appearance is the divine seal of God's complete and total acceptance of his sacrifice for you on your behalf. He's coming back, but he's not coming back to repeat what he did before. He's coming back to do what? to claim his people, to claim his adopted sons and daughters, described here at the end of verse 28 as those who nonchalantly wait for him. No, as those who eagerly await him. Beloved, you are absolutely saved now, and Jesus is coming to complete your salvation experience. Your salvation is past, present, and future. And in the future, you'll be rescued out of this broken world into eternal communion, peace, and freedom from sin. 
That is what the author tells us. That's what God tells you here. But for now, you and I eagerly await him. This is the same kind of anticipation with excitement the Apostle Paul wrote of in Romans 8, 23 and 25. He says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, namely the redemption of our body. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The Apostle Paul also had the same kind of doctrine that he gave to the church that gave him so much joy, like my beloved Santan Bible Church, uh, the church in Philippi, Philippians 3.20. There the Apostle Paul wrote, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the human level, I can think of my beloved Margie and I. We had a long-distance relationship until the day that we were married. And this was a few decades ago, back when you had to pay for long-distance phone calls. And you can imagine what those bills look like. Those phone calls were wonderful. They were a lifeline to sanity in anticipation of our upcoming marriage. But as wonderful as they were, they pale. There was no comparison to the actual joy of our marriage. Beloved, in the same way, and even infinitely more so, your eternal life in Christ right now, which began at your conversion, is wonderful. But now imagine when you're together with your Savior forever and ever, seeing him as he truly is for all eternity in heaven. And this anticipatory waiting. We have one more example. Turn over a couple pages to chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter, with the example of Moses. In Hebrews 11, verse 24 through 27, this is what the author brings out by way of example in the case of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why would he do that? He answers, the author answers for us, verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, watch this, for he was looking to the reward. Therefore, by faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch him. Beloved, Moses anticipated even before Christ, he looked to the future reward. Now imagine what it will be like when you hear on that great day, on that last day, the Great words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of your master, into the pleasure of your master that I have prepared beforehand for you. Beloved, there is power in the blood. The old covenant high priest, we read in verse 25, entered the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Christ, your great and perfect high priest, entered the heavenly holy of holies into the very presence of God with his very own imperishable blood. This is Communion Sunday. 
David Legg, the charming Irish pastor. Again, I wish I can't imitate an Irish accent any better than I can a Scottish accent, so I'll just read it straightforward. He said this, a bloodless religion brings a Christless hell. If you think you can preach the gospel without the cross, it is well nigh to apostasy. Paul told the Corinthians that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What that means is for every man, for every woman, the cross is either, the blood of Christ is either a place of grace or it is a place of the very judgment the author wrote about here. And dear friend, as we approach the communion table, if you are here this morning not trusting in Christ alone by faith alone, what God tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 is if you partake of this, you would be drinking judgment to yourself because you'd be participating in a celebration with a family of which you're not part. But it is a family into which you are invited. It is a faith into which you are urged. And understand this, salvation is not like getting cruise control added to your car. It's like getting an entirely new engine. You would no longer have the weight of your sin condemning you. You'll enjoy an inward and spiritual participation and purification and the joy of heart communion with God. There is relief in life and there is peace in death because of the life that comes after death. That is the promise of the good news of the gospel. And this is part of, dearly beloved, what we remember as we now take communion. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you, Lord. We thank you again, Lord, and we praise you for your righteous judgment. And we are eternally grateful for forgiveness, for adoption, for redemption, for knowing you and the fellowship of your suffering. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for allowing your blood to be spilled there on Calvary. And thank you, Lord God, Lord Jesus, for taking your blood metaphorically, spiritually into heaven and cleansing even the heavenly things themselves in preparation for our entry into the holy and heavenly holy of holies. And Lord Jesus, now as we approach the table, help us to remember all that you've taught, all that you commanded us to observe. Help us to remember what you did and what you are doing, and most of all, who you are. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the table. Amen.